You can take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16. I believe if you if you don't have a Bible or if a Bible is intimidating to you, it is kind of intimidating. It's a big book full of other books, and sometimes you can kind of lose your use your place. One easy way to find Psalms is take a Bible and just kind of crack it open in the middle, and ordinarily you'll you'll luck out and, and open it to the book of Psalms. And then you've got a bunch of big numbers and a bunch of little numbers. The big numbers are chapter numbers, little numbers are verse numbers, and that's how you can find it. I think if my memory serves me right, in the pew Bible there, uh, or the the Bible in the chair in front of you, it's on page 453. And if that is wrong, I apologize, but I think if my memory serves me right, you can just find Psalm 16 right there on page 453 in the Bible there in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible... Or if you don't have a Bible in that translation, uh, we would love for you to take that. That would be our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. Um, as John mentioned uh, this morning, uh, when God has spoken, and we can open God's Word and be assured that God has spoken as we look into the Scriptures. Psalm 16 this morning, and then let's uh, think a little bit ahead um, of where we're, we're kind of going uh, as far as sermons. Uh, next week, Lord willing, I'm envisioning us beginning a series uh, in Philippians, but we're going to begin it in a bit of a non-conventional way. Um, I'm thinking at this point, I don't know if you remember, I think we did this maybe with First John, uh, where we did our sermon was really an extended reading of the entire letter. We read it, and I think we had some uh, singing that broke some of that up. And so what I'd love for us to do, Lord willing, is uh, come next week prepared to, for us as a church family, to read Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians together uh, in the morning service, kind of as a, just an introduction for the entire letter of what we have in front of us. And then uh, there's going to be uh, uh, one of our mission partners, Paul Campbell, will be with us the following week to give a report of their church planning efforts out in Utah. And then uh, we might have one other guest speaker before then we get into Philippians um, formally. Um, so I just would love for you to have kind of a heads up and between now and then begin to acquaint yourself and familiarize yourself with uh, God's word to the Philippians. This morning, though, we find ourselves in Psalm 16. I'm curious. I know we don't normally do this, but uh, go ahead and raise your hand if this is true of you. But has anyone in here lived through a earthquake? Oh, look at that. Many more hands than I expected. Wow. Um, I have not. I can only imagine what it would be like to have the ground beneath you shake. Um, you've, you've heard how folks have had like a bad... Um, you know, airplane ride or a bad, I remember, you know, if you do like a dinner cruise on like some sort of ship, I remember you know, sometimes those can go badly. Um, my wife takes one of the kids up to visit our, her, uh, my in-laws, her parents in New Hampshire, and sometimes they've done a boat ride out to an island. And one year it was a horrific boat ride. People puking all over the place and then making announcements, do not throw up in the garbage cans. <laughs> it was one of those kind of rides. And uh, it's kind of after one of those things, the ground's shaking underneath you, so to speak. You get back and you just want to kind of kiss terra firma, right? Kiss the ground. But an earthquake disrupts all that. The thing that we would try to find security and stability is the thing that's shaking. And it's, I can imagine how, um, how disorienting that would be. We ordinarily do not like to be shaken around in life. We might do that for a thrill, like ride a roller coaster for a temporary thrill, but none of us would like to live like life in this kind of shaken, turmoil, uncertain, lacking security and protection kind of environment. 
There's a massive industry where enormous amounts of money are spent in pursuit of attaining this kind of unshakable security. Safe rooms, security systems, insurance plans, doomsday bunkers, and none of that in and of itself. If, if you say, well, do you, just, you just are telling me that insurance is, is, is bad. No, I did not say anything like that. There's just an enormous industry out there that is trying to offer folks a sense of security and protection. And there's wisdom in, in, in the pursuit of that, but we all understand that at the end of the day, none of us can buy the ultimate protection that really our hearts long for and want most. Where do you find security? What do you look to for your sense of protection in life? We are looking somewhere. And Psalm 16 is telling us really that unshakable protection is found in God. God is the only unshakable refuge. Look at verse 8. I know we're going a little bit out of order there, but if you look at verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. That's the kind of life everyone wants, right? To be able to describe, imagine getting together with family at Christmas or Thanksgiving or a reunion and they say, how's it going? And you say, well, I've put the Lord always before me. I am not shaken. Like, Whoa. Great. That's the kind of life everyone longs for, is looking for, is searching for. Psalm 16 really then serves as a meditation on God as your unshakable refuge. Now, that sounds very Christian ease like, right? Just very kind of cliche. Just trust God, everything will be fine. The challenge is it's easy to say something like that. It's much harder to actually embrace and to live in the reality of that. Now, as we begin looking in Psalm 16, I just want us to understand that this sermon is primarily going to be for those who are children of God through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. So, in other words, what I'm trying to make sure we understand is that I'm speaking mainly to Christians today. If you're not a Christian, we're very glad that you've shown up. We're very glad that you've gathered with us. We're glad that you have come to learn more about what it means to be a Christian and who God is. And we want you to keep coming. But you need to know that the promises in Psalm 16, this life-giving truth, is true in unique ways for Christians, for those who are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus. And if that doesn't yet describe you, we would hope that you keep coming because we're going to keep singing the gospel, we're going to keep preaching the gospel, praying, worshiping Jesus, who is, the, who is the, the, really the gem of the gospel, who is the gospel. And we'd love for you to know what it means to have your sins forgiven. So we'd, we'd invite you to come. And we would love for you to listen in and learn in this sermon in Psalm 16 of what it means to have God as your protection. But ultimately, those truths are uniquely true in these ways for Christians. How is it then that God is an unshakable refuge? Well, it might seem kind of silly and far-fetched, right? I mean, have you read any of the headlines? Are you looking at the volatility in, in the economic market? Are you looking at the volatility in world peace? I mean, on and on it goes. Any sector in our world is touched with the sense of turmoil and instability. And then Psalm 16 has the audacity to tell us that God is unshakable. How does this work? Well, look at verse 1 and 2. God is an unshakable refuge because he is good. Really, the rest of this sermon is going to be kind of pulling on that thread, helping us embrace and meditate and enjoy, and hopefully not just in our minds accept, but in our hearts rejoice in these truths. God is an unshakable refuge because he is good. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, or I say to Jehovah, to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
David is making a petition to God to preserve him from what specifically we don't, we don't know. And then he makes a declaration about God. And the petition and the declaration are linked. They go together. So in other words, David is saying, preserve me, God, because I take refuge in you. David is, his, his, all of his confidence, his trust, his dependence is in God. And because of that, he is crying out to God to preserve him. Why? Because God is his refuge. See, there's one thing to say God is your refuge, but then what do you look to when you're in trouble? If you're looking to something other than God or in place of God, then you can't really say that God is your refuge. The thing that you are looking to, that you're calling out to, that you're depending on, that is going to be your functional refuge. David's petition for preservation is based on the grounds of God being his refuge. Sometimes we think it the other way around. Sometimes we think that God is our refuge if he preserves me. But it's not that way. The, 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 the keep, does that word make sense? I, I probably overuse these analogies, so I'm sorry. But in Lord of the Rings, you have them, um, the, the hordes of orcs are challenging them and they keep retreating into the keep this last fortification against the hordes of evil and the threat. God is your keep, right? He is your refuge. What does that mean? You are looking to him to preserve you. You're not saying, is God going to preserve me? And if he is, then I guess he means he's my refuge. No, it's the other way around. Do you see how that works? Do you turn to God for your refuge? Or who do you turn to? Or where do you look? for your unshakable protection and security. David turned to God. Psalm 16 is a, it's a good thing for us to ask ourselves this. Do you? Why should you turn to God? Why should you trust in God to be your refuge? Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Um, David uses God's unique covenant name here. Do you, you notice in verse 2 that you have the word Lord there twice, but one of them, in your Bibles, is one of them capitalized? All of the letters are capitalized? That capitalized name of Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. It's the same name that God told Moses when he defined himself as the I Am. He is telling Moses to, to do this um, rescuing work to lead Israel out of bondage. And Moses in Exodus 3 says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Like, how are we going to know that, you, that this is true, this is legit? You're not just some crazy guy out there with some far-fetched plan that's going to get us all in a bunch of trouble. What am I supposed to sell them? What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what's encapsulated in this covenant name of Yahweh, this eternal one, eternally existent in past, eternally existent in future. I know our minds are kind of rebooting in the idea of that, but this is who God is. He said to him, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This name displays the eternality of God. He is transcendent in his existence. You might begin to see then how a God who is transcendent in this way is actually where you can find an unshakable refuge. If God is transcendent like this, if he's eternal in his existence, 
what could possibly shake him? And if you are hidden in him, then you are unshakable too. The second term that David uses, capital L but then lowercase ORD, is the word Adonai. And in other words, and I know, um, well, in other words, David is saying, I say to Yahweh, to this covenant name of God, you are my Adonai. And with the Adonai, it's referring to God's rule and authority. A tenant or a vassal would use this term to refer to a landowner, my Lord, uh, as a demonstration of respect or deference and honor to the one who owned everything and leased property to others. Uh, in Downton Abbey, they referred to Robert Crawley as Lord Grantham. It's that idea, this, this title of honor and respect and reverence, the one who is sovereign of that land and who makes the decisions of what happens there. That's the idea here that David is conveying. God is the ruler and sovereign in David's life. Therefore, David takes refuge in God. Now, does this emphasis on God's eternal lordship and God's sovereign authority seem oppressive or stifling to you? It might. It might feel threatening, as if your freedoms and individual liberty are hindered. If you're not a Christian, it might really feel that way, that you have this being who is saying, I am Lord of your life. I, I will be Lord of your life. Would you bow the knee in reverence and honor and submission to me? And you might be thinking, man, I don't want that at all. That's the opposite of freedom. Well, I, I, I think we have, if, if that is our thinking, we've bought into more of the American dream philosophy than we care to admit. The scriptures actually tell us a path of freedom that is not American dream freedom. It is true freedom. It is the freedom of actually living a life that we've been made for, a life of rightly relating to God. He is the author of life. He has made life and he has given us life. Therefore, true freedom then is living in alignment with his plan then. Somebody could say, I know this is absurd, but somebody could say, I am free. Therefore, I'm going to cut my grass with a piano. I know, it's absurd, right? Well, but a lot of what happens in our world is absurd in those ways. People saying, I'm free to do whatever I want, and you realize, well, that's not freedom, that's bondage. Freedom is this, is actually using a lawnmower to cut your lawn, because that's what it's made for. And you have been made for something as an image bearer of God. So then, take heart, because Psalm 16 is going to take these powerful realities of who God is, this eternal transcendence, and his sovereign rule, and he's going to let them sparkle in glorious ways that I think will really let your heart rejoice. Look at the rest of verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you're my Lord, but then notice these words, I have no good apart from you. <laughs> That's an amazing statement. One of the reasons that God is an unshakable refuge for David is because David understands that he has no good apart from God. No good. David admits that without God, there would be nothing good in his life. Everything good in his life, therefore, is a gift from God. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote it this way in his letter. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, there's a, a, an idea of this that C.S. Lewis has in his book on uh, the weight of glory, where um, C.S. Lewis is, is giving the idea that, that the good that we see in, in life around us, the things that make our heart rejoice and the pleasures and the richness of the things that we find joy, are, even our laughters, the best of all of that are, is really are, are kind of like the, 
um, the lingering imprint of God, the divine creator, who has made all things good, that God, what's unique about Christianity is God made things, he made the world out of an excess of delight and joy. This is why in the Genesis account, God made this and it was good. God made this and it was good. It's just like God was having this hilarious enjoyment through creation. And we see the goodness of things around us in our world, but yet we also see how things are twisted and distorted because of sin. Psalm 16 teaches us that without God, we have nothing good, or put it another way, God is our only true source of good. So we need to really just kind of let this sink in. I cannot overstate how fundamentally important that simple truth is for us today in our modern American context. God is our only true source of good. What is the good that you're pursuing in life? What is the good life that you are pursuing? Well, many in our world, and we as Christians who are living in this world, have these philosophical pressures pushing in on the way we think. So it's good for us to understand that. So we can live a a, a winsome Christian faith in our context, in our modern day context. Many in our world live a materialistic life. Patterns of living, patterns of spending money, patterns of use of their time, all display a worldview that says what gives life meaning and purpose is some material good or some earthly condition. Some kind of comfort or safety or pleasure or possession or experience. So then, when real life gets in the way and threatens all of that, when suffering occurs, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's psychological, whatever, whatever the suffering enters into our life, into our world, what then happens is it inevitably starts threatening our ability to achieve comfort or possessions or safety or pleasure. Suffering will destroy those efforts or it puts them in peril, which is what makes us feel like we're out of control. It makes us worried. It fills us with anxiety. Now we're looking for something to find comfort and security in because the things that we are finding our purpose and our joy and our fulfillment in life are threatened by life. Many in our world, especially in America, believe that the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom are our greatest good. And that's why suffering and the inevitable difficulties of life are so traumatic and so disorienting and turn our lives upside down. Suffering in all of its various forms threatens our loves. It threatens our joys. It threatens our comforts. It threatens the relationships wherein we derive joy and comfort and pleasure and fulfillment. So then how can we not be shaken when that happens? Because if that hasn't happened to you yet, just keep living Something will happen. I'm sorry, I'm not you like I'm glad you came to church today, right? The pastor told you something bad's gonna happen in your life. <laughs> Friend, Psalm sixteen is here to equip us for when that happens. How can we not be shaken? How can we be a people of peace and joy even through those hard and difficult times? The answer is found in Psalm sixteen. You must believe in your head and embrace in your heart that God rules supreme and He is your ultimate source of good. So what does that mean? Well, think of it this way. It means we must locate, you must locate your meaning, your greatest joys, your purpose in life, in things that cannot be touched by death or suffering that cannot destroy. Do you want an unshakable life? Then look at verse 8 again. 
Then set the Lord always before you. Set the Lord always before you. Let, let life in Him be where you locate your joys and your purpose and your meaning and your fulfillment in life. Set the Lord always before me. Why? He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You see, we all have something at our right hand. We'll get to this a little bit more. And that is what we find joy and fulfillment and comfort in life. And Psalm 16 is saying, let that be God. If God is that, if God is where you locate your joys and delights and fulfillment and meaning and purpose, then your life will not be shaken. David teases out some implications of God being the good life in verses 3 and 4. These two verses are like counterweights, okay? They teach a similar truth, but from a positive and from a negative viewpoint. Verse 3, you see it? On the one hand, those who are aligned with God, those who love and serve God, are the excellent ones. And this isn't because of something in them or because something they've achieved through hard work or determination. It's not an us-versus-them idea intrinsically to, to people and what they've done. It's true they're the excellent ones because their allegiance and alignment is with God who is good. So therefore, they are the excellent ones, not because of what they have done, because of who they are with, God himself. And David delights in the saints and God's people because he delights in God. It makes sense, right? This shows us that to say you delight in God means you will find gladness in those who delight in God too. Which, friends, this is why Sunday morning can be a source of joy for us inasmuch as we are gathered together in our shared unity and enjoyment of God as our Savior and Lord. And we can remind each other of the truths that give us eternal meaning and purpose in life. The truths of Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. Delighting in God will spill out of your life as you delight in God's people. On the other hand, David doesn't find any solidarity with those who deny or defy God. That's in verse 4. Those sorrows, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The idea of drink offerings there is a reference to the uh, to work practices of worship, that it is possible for people who are running after another God to be involved in religious observance, and yet they are not actually worshiping God. And David says he does not have any sort of alignment with them. That's the counterweight there. He does not support the godless in their lifestyle, their worldview, their acts of worship. Why? Because it's a false worldview. It's a false life. So look at verse 4. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. I hope you're beginning to see, in this psalm, you have enormous joy counterweighted against this this shakable um, sorrow. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. This is a needed truth for us today. What do you run after? That is what you're looking to to give you a sense of security. That's what you're hoping will be your God, what you run after. In ancient civilizations, back when this was written, it would have been um, ordinary for people or for nations to believe in a set of gods. We've got mythology, like Greek gods, Roman gods, there's all these different names and all these mythological stories that go with them, right? It was a kind of a, a basket of gods, a set of them. You'd have a god of war, a god of beauty, a god of fertility, a god of wealth, a god of pleasure, a god of parties, fill in the blanks, right? You with me? People worshipped those different gods in hopes of gaining their blessing. 
which would be the enjoyment of those conditions. Would you like to be beautiful? Worship the God of beauty. Would you like to have, uh, have a, a large family? Then worship the God of fertility. Do you want to win the wars that you're fighting? Then worship the God of war. You, you see? In our modern day context, we don't believe that. So we're like, ah, that's so silly. It's so, you know, so archaic. But we still run after all those things, don't we? I mean, don't we? I mean, isn't, aren't modern day marketing techniques all there in an effort to sell you? You want to be beautiful? Well, here is how you can worship the God of beauty. <laughs> Please don't take this to its logical extreme that if any of you used any sort of healthcare beauty products this morning, that you, are, that you are full of idolatrous worship. That is not at all what I'm saying here. I'm just saying that the same mechanisms are in our culture today. Pursuing beauty, pursuing fame, pursuing wealth, pursuing, those, pursuing that as our source of life. Everyone lives for something. You do. You live for something. This last week, you lived for something. As we, as we are, we're here we're in October, right? Okay, a couple more months and we're going to be, Lord willing, okay, uh, we'll be rolling over to a new year. And this, this year, you will have lived for something. You have something that you say to yourself in your moments of greatest honesty. If I have that, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be happy. Then my life will have purpose. And whatever it is for you that you order your life around, that is your functional God. That is your functional deity. That is what you're running after. So David says, those who run after other gods will have a multiplication of sorrows. Do you see it in verse 4? Their sorrows will multiply. And we get this, right? This is very simple. But 10 plus 10 is, do you know the answer? What is it? Okay, I know we don't normally do response, response here, but just for sake of humor, 10 plus 10 is 20. What is 10 times 10? Okay, same numbers, different, different um, uh, application there. Instead of addition, you have multiplication. You see a big difference between those answers. And what the Bible here is pointing out is something that we do know. We understand, we, we, we understand that we, we see the reality of it. If you run after other gods, you will ultimately experience not just some sorrow, but your sorrows will multiply and multiply and multiply. But here's how crazy we are. Here's how rebellious we are to God in our natural state. Even though sorrows multiply, we often double down in pursuing those other gods as if we just haven't done it enough, we need to do it more. And yet God is faithful to his word and our sorrows will multiply. But here's, just imagine if you had the exception. What if you were lucky enough to actually get the things you were running after? Okay, let's just say that you're the, you're the outlier and you're pursuing whatever it is, wealth or career or relationship, a spouse, children, respect, admiration. You fill in the blank. What if you were lucky enough to actually achieve those things you are running after? Well, one, it's never enough, is it? Never enough. And two, they will eventually start to slip away. Whether that's beauty or whether that's financial success or whether that's respect or admiration, eventually, time always erodes that. It is ruthless. Nothing in this world has a lasting foundation. Even the most precious relationship that you have, one day, death will separate you at least temporarily, with the Christian worldview. 
end time, everything starts to slip away. Everything will eventually be shattered and shaken. And by the way, none of those things that I mentioned that running after in and of themselves are evil. It's not evil to find joy in children or in a spouse or in success in a career or in beauty. It's not, it's not in evil to find joy there. The problem is, is, I think it was said this way. I don't know who said it. it wasn't, this is not original. But whenever we make a good thing our ultimate thing, that's when idolatry happens. That's when we're running after another god. Making a good thing an ultimate thing. What is your heart running after? David keeps unpacking these implications of what it means to say, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you, verse 2. Look at verses 5 and 6. He keeps pulling this thread. The Lord is my chosen portion. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. Imagine yourself at a feast. You can order anything on the menu. David says, I am ordering God. I want to be satisfied in Him. A cup, which is a symbol of celebration, of joy, of delight, right? He says his source of celebration and joy and delight is in Yahweh. You hold my lot. He understands that God is the one who is ultimately in control of the outcome of his life. God, uh, David is not some sort of self-directed, individual, moral agent who is entirely responsible for his own outcome. You say, well, does it mean his choices don't matter? No. That's another one of the wrinkles that's unique to Christianity. Christianity believes in a God who is sovereign over all, simultaneously maintaining that your choices matter. And we don't like to live in that in between. We don't like to live in there. We like to say, how much of it is God's, God's will and how much of it is my will? Is it 50-50? Is it 80-20? The Bible says God is sovereign and he says you are responsible. And you say, how much? 100%. But here David is understanding and admitting God is the one. He cannot thwart God's sovereignty. He cannot overrule God's, God's reign. The Lord is his chosen portion. And here's the result of it. You say, man, that sounds kind of terrifying. Friends, it's not. Aren't you glad that God is in control? Aren't you glad that you can wake up in the morning and know that the outcome of life is not entirely dependent upon you? You wouldn't, you wouldn't even know what shoes to put on. You wouldn't know what to wear. What if you wore the wrong thing? Which way should I take to work today? What if I miss the light that I was supposed to be at? To have this, I mean, do you, you understand the, the immensity of the complexity of those logical connections of causation in sovereignty? You with me? You, wouldn't, you would lay in bed in absolute fear. You'd be shut down if it was all up to you. But notice what David says. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is David's inheritance? It's having God as his portion and his cup. That's what it is. He's not describing merely believing in God. He's talking about finding soul satisfaction in God. He's not running after other gods. He's running after Yahweh, Adonai, his inheritance. This beautiful reality for him is God himself. That's the meaning of his highest good, his deepest joy. This is why David could have a life that is not shaken. It's not shaken. One of the ways, okay, now this is, this is going to make us squirm. This has made me squirm as I was studying through this and praying and preaching this to my own heart this week. But one of the ways that, we can, that you can test the authenticity if you are running after God or why you obey God or not is, for example, this. After you give to the poor or study Christian doctrine or attend and serve your church family, or give money to God's work, or you fill in the blank of some other, other religious expression, okay? You with me? 
If after you do that, if after all of that, something goes wrong in your life, do you get angry at God? Do you say, well, why did I even bother? Why, why did I even, why, did I, why, do I, why am I even a Christian? I've done all this. I've sacrificed, I've served, I've given. And this is how God repays me? Now, I want to be sympathetic. I think all of us are tempted to have those questions in our minds at times, and it's a purifying, it's a purifying thing for us to go through. But if that is what happens in you, are you religious because you hope to get good things going in your life? Are you trying to, to purchase good from this cosmic, the Santa Clausification of God? Or are you trying to earn God's blessings? And if so, then maybe you aren't actually running after God himself, but actually running after the things that God gives, the good things. So it is possible then to be religious, to be moral, to be, to be circumspect in that way, but actually you're not pursuing God. You're actually pursuing the things that you hope to purchase from God through those good efforts. Which, by the way, again, is why Christianity is not, hey, if you just do a lot of good things, if you can just pull yourself together, if you can just get it all done right, then you're going to be okay in life. Christianity says, no, you are so bad, you are so unable to do that, it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to save you, to give you the life that you could never get on your own. That's grace. That is the gift of salvation in God through Christ. Now, I know these questions are hard for us to ask because there's, there's times where any one of us as Christians could find ourselves, yeah, I guess I, I have them. The book of Job in the Old Testament is one of the longest examinations of that kind of thinking. That put it, um, It's described this way, this, this, re, this reverse retribution. If I do good, then God will give me good type of life. Here's the reality, though. Are the things that God gives your greatest joy... Or is God himself your greatest joy? So if the things that God gives us are where we derive our greatest joy, then our life will be shakable. It will be shaken. But if our, if our greatest joy, if, our, if the location of our meaning and purpose in life is located in God himself, then our lives will be unshakable. I hope we see this. Do you get your greatest meaning in the things of this life under the sun? To, to quote from Ecclesiastes, it, it uses that phrase to locate its truth, life under the sun, and it says some difficult, honest, raw things. I love the realism of Ecclesiastes. You'll read through it and you're going to be like, yeah, exactly. Somebody else was thinking the same thing. Friends, if our meaning and purpose and joys are located in someone who is transcendent, not just on life under the sun, but who transcends that, then our joys and our purpose and our meaning transcend this earthly life in its own existence, and therefore our lives will be unshakable. This is, I believe, what, what we see uh, when we read like, stories of martyrs. You read stories of martyrs like Fox's Book of Martyrs or other, other accounts of po- folks who have gone to their death in faithfulness to Christ. How is it that they could walk to the stake where they would be killed or burned and they're, they're clapping? There's this joy of... Or, or you read in the Acts where they are beaten and imprisoned and shamed in the worst kind of treatments. 
and they're singing and praising God. It's really mind-boggling, isn't it, how weird Christians are? But I start to see that, ah, when somebody is locating their greatest purpose and joy and meaning in life in the one who transcends this life, then it means that our lives are unshakable. I'm not saying that lives are easy, but unshakable. When death cannot destroy your greatest joys, then your life is unshakable. And I say destroy. I'm not saying it doesn't, doesn't touch them. Death is a cause of sorrow, and, there, and there's a right and, a, and, a, and, a, and an appropriate place for sorrow, but there is a godly sorrow. There is a sorrow that shows a hope, and there's a sorrow that shows a hopelessness. And Christians have this, should have the, the sorrow of hope. Why? Because they have a life who is un, that is unshakable. Why? Because it's located in God himself. If death cannot destroy your relationship with God, then you really do have an unshakable life. And that's where David goes next in verses 9 and 10. We'll ramp up here. He says, therefore, here's a summary. When this is the way your life is oriented, when this is your worldview, when this is the philosophical foundation of how you relate in the workplace and in your family, and as you vacation, and as you make investments, and this is very practical, friends. If this is how you orient toward life, therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh, his, his physical experience, he dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. When your source of joy and delight, your meaning and your grace fulfillment are located in God, it means death can't destroy it. And that's the truest sense of security. So what's highlighted here is the eternal nature of your relationship with God. It's this idea of the resurrection. This is an amazing source of joy and comfort for God's people. And I really want for us to live with this truth in kind of activated this week for us. The Apostle Paul wrote about it this way. We have, we have mentioned these verses probably ad nauseum in sermons here. Okay, But here it is again. In Romans 8, Paul is writing this, this triumph, triumphant chapter. I mean, Romans 8 is one of the best chapters in the entire Bible. He says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Right? I mean, Romans 8 starts with, there's no condemnation. Okay? You have God's Spirit with you, indwelling you. It's this wonderful, glorious, triumphal um, realities for you as, God, as, as a child of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are real threats, by the way, in his, in his day and in our day in some, some areas of the world. Verse 37, no. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You say, well, what about all the Christians that died of famine? Or what about all the Christians who died of exposure from nakedness, hiding in catacombs? What about all the Christians who died in distress? Sure, it doesn't look like they came out in the good life. It doesn't look like their life was unshakable. But no, realize we're conquerors through Him who loved us. We're not conquerors by having feasts for dinner or having wardrobes full of clothes. We're conquerors through Him who loved us. How? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, which is, by the way, the things that we worry about, right? We worry about things present and we worry about things to come. Those are the sources of anxiety. That's what shakes your life nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that verse disappoint you? Could you say, no, no, no. None of that's going to what? Affect my bank account. Affect my, invest, affect my investments negatively. None of that's going to you know, ruin my relationship with my child. None of that's going to... If, you're, if, you, if your heart keeps locating, locating in, the, in that arena, friends, you're missing the riches that God is offering you here in Romans 8. In verse 10, we see echoes of what we know as the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. This source of unshakable joy and assurance and hope and security the love and joy and delight found in God is eternal and that's what we have in God through Christ because he's resurrected. Paul said it this way in Romans 6. If we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The Christian doctrine of the resurrection means we don't just look forward to a better version of life. Some impersonal, spiritual, ethereal existence. The Christian doctrine of resurrection actually teaches that we look forward to enjoying the life we wished we had in this world, but it always seemed to elude us. A physical life in new bodies, some of us are saying hallelujah in our minds right now, where there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering. What if you lived this week as if the resurrection was actually a fact? You say, well, I believe it. I'm here. I mean, as a church, we celebrated Christ. We sang. I mean, I'm part of this church family. I believe it. I hear you. But just imagine how it would revolutionize if you believed it was a fact. Jesus rose up from the grave and he will do that to you someday. How would that change the way you live in your workplace? How would that change the way you react to suffering or the way you process bad news? Because how, how, would it, how would it change the way you enjoy good things in life? I mean, are you the kind of person that when something good is happening, you're already calculating when is this going to go bad? Right? Are we, is that, if that's you, I know, right? You're your worst enemy, right? You're on vacation, you're already thinking, man, when are we going to have to leave? This is going to be over soon. Kids are in for Christmas, you're like, oh man, they're going to be gone. You're already sad while it starts, right? Friends, imagine if you believed the resurrection was true how much that removes fear of missing out. This isn't all that there is. This isn't the end of the story for Christians. What kind of stability would that truth give your soul? Think about it. If really, Jesus really did rise from the grave, and if he says, through faith in him, you will one day rise from the grave too, then really, think about it. Everything is going to be okay. It'll all be okay. It will. I mean, you go to the worst. I don't know where your doom and gloom mind goes. What if some nation sends nuclear missiles at us? I'm, I'm, I hope I didn't just lose this all in like political debates here, right? But whatever it is, honestly, think about it. If Jesus rose from the grave, it'll all be okay. It, it will be. You're like, what about all? It will all be okay. It will be. Friends, this is how Christians can be a people of peace in a world that of turmoil. This is how we can be a people of joy in a world of sorrow and heartbreak. This is how we are a people of hope in a world that is, that is hopeless. We're not unaffected by sorrows and trials and suffering. But when our, when our purpose and meaning and joy are located in this transcendent one, 
who loved us and wrote himself into our story and saved us and made us alive in him and promised a resurrection like his. Wow, this is really part of a winsome witness. And it all leads up to verse 11 then, which is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. You make known to me the path of life. That's the path of life. It's not the American dream. It is not the American dream. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What's going on here at the right hand of God? We're out of time. I'm going to skip through these verses and just tell you what we understand at the right hand of God is Jesus himself. After he finished his cross work, his resurrection, he seated himself at the right hand of God and it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? He is interceding for you, it says in Romans 8.34. And here's what I want to just kind of send us with on mission as a church family. Because we are to take these joys, this life, this reality, and we want to tell it to other people. We are not selling windows. We're not selling siding. We're not selling solar panels. We're not selling Jesus either. But we can winsomely engage a world that's broken in heart and lost and hopeless with these unshakable realities that are operative in our life. How? Well, think of this. One of the ways that God will change us into Christ is this way. I'm going to quote from Henry Skugel, who was a Scottish pastor who lived in the 1600s. He lived 28 years. He died of tuberculosis. He said this. By the way... Um, uh, he says this, The true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections that we may have them always before us. Sounds like Psalm 16, right? Verse 8. And derive an impression of them on ourselves and beholding with open face as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we may be changed into the same image from glory to glory. If you're not a Christian... This whole thing we've been talking about may sound weird and strange, but friends, this is the life that's offered in Christ. Christians, when we are living this way, when we have a life that is full of love and is located in Christ this way, I think the witness that we will have in our world will be powerful. It will be. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to our neighbors in a different way. When they ask you, so what did you do this weekend? Instead of feeling ashamed or embarrassed of, well, I went to church... We could say, you know, I gathered with my church family and we worshiped and enjoyed God together. We learned from Psalm 16. And it's just going to be kind of a jaw-dropping moment. Like, wow. They get to peer in a porthole of, of rich, full life of transcendent meaning and purpose. This is what we've been called to as God's people. Let's pray.